You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're live here with myself, Talib Man. Uh, and, you know, I have the privilege of being uh, in the studio today with two imams, Imam Safir and Imam Imran. So uh, I'm going to send the, 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 the ball around and let everyone introduce it because Safir obviously is a, a long time presenter at a drive time show. But he's usually on a Tuesday. So um, I'm, I'm privileged to have his, his company today. Thank you very much, uh, Talib. Um, yeah, uh, great being here. And um, I think uh, yeah, we have obviously uh, uh, a new uh, presenter and a new uh, colleague uh, today, which uh, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if he's that excited. <laughs> how, how are you feeling, Imran? Uh, I'm a bit nervous, to okay. be honest. Um, but let's see how yeah. we go. Okay. So, you know, you join us as a Drive Time uh, show host for the yeah. first time. But what do you normally do within the community? Yeah, so I'm uh, currently working uh, in uh, Noor Academy. Um, there I teach and uh, and admin and uh, I teach Wakfino Slebas there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a religious uh, knowledge mm-hmm. to um, children. For for children, for yeah. the Yemeni Muslim community. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nice. And uh, because obviously that's 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 quite concurrent because it's the beginning of the secular school year again. So you, as, I, as I was driving in, I saw a lot of uh, kids in their uniforms and stuff. So it must be uh, our, our prayers always go out. To those beginning their work day again, or beginning after that long period of uh, hiatus, the summer holidays for teachers, yeah. Uh, but uh, no, no, they they do do a very stressful job, and I'm sure uh, there's a certain kind of anxiety going back to the schoolroom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But anyway, without further ado, um, as usual, our show uh, drive time show, we either ap- approach uh, two topics in the first hour. Uh, or during the two hours, but today we're dedicating both uh, both the hours to uh, our main topic of pathway to peace. So we'll be looking at effectively, you know, what is uh, what's happening in the world today, um, what's bringing us to to this this recourse of, uh, I suppose, just depression. Really, when I look at the news, Sophia, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> congratulations to Liz Trust, obviously uh, becoming prime minister, but hopefully. Yeah. Uh, God willing, um, you know, she's going to have some of the answers that yeah. uh, this country desperately needs. Exactly. I mean, just before uh, getting in the car and traveling up here, you know, mm. it was the, the announcement was on TV and I, mm-hmm. I watched it as well. And I was just, you know, at that time, obviously, you pray for your country, obviously, mm-hmm. that we live in. We want the best for the country, for the people. And that's what Islam teaches us as well, to to be loyal and to support and and of course we 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 do that but on the other hand it was also a little bit of anxiety like you know what mm. what, what will happen in the future yeah. what kind of leadership uh, are we expecting i mean all of these things are very uncertain it's very uncertain times in, mm. indeed mm-hmm. yeah i mean uh when we look at it it's uh one would call winning the leadership battle in the conservative party a bit of a and actually becoming prime minister uh somewhat of a poisoned chalice I don't know if you know what the terminology of poison chalice is, Imran. Uh, no, I'm afraid I don't. Right, okay, so chalice <laughs> being being uh, a vessel to drink from, but it's poisoned. So given the uh, problems that yeah. she's going to have to... The challenges. Uh, yeah, yeah, the challenges, yeah, that she's going to have to um, surmount with her premiership, um, it's, it's quite daunting. 
It's not as if it's like a new thing. Uh, the, the economy is going hunky dory. Um, we've got the cost of living crisis. We've got the uh, conflict in Ukraine, and you know, obviously, um, us being voice of Islam, but not just because we are the voice of Islam. Uh, you know, our brothers in Pakistan, mm. due to the floods and the uh, the you know the natural disaster that has uh, uh, you know gripped the nation. Yeah. yeah, gripped the nation of Pakistan. I mean, I believe it's like a third of the country is underwater. Yeah, it's it's. Absolutely unbelievable, uh, unbelievable. I think it's just people don't realize that already people in that country, you know, we're struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, people are in in real poverty, and then now not even having a roof over their head, and and you know everything just swept away, mm-hmm. their belongings, and uh, you know it's it's just uh, a human uh, tragedy. It's a tragedy. Yeah. A I mean, tragedy. do you, do you, Imran? Do you have any uh, relatives over in Pakistan? Uh, not at the moment, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, obviously the condition in Pakistan is very, I mean, terrifying. Mm-hmm. And uh, people are literally dying of hunger. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously it's um, a horrific time for Pakistan. We can just pray and obviously mm-hmm. can help uh, them as well. Mm-hmm. So, Talking about help, of course, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of charity um, going into uh, different projects now in Pakistan and Humanity First is also mm-hmm. doing that yeah. they have an appeal for the Pakistan yeah. floods so so anybody listening and you mm-hmm. want to help out uh, not only through prayers but you can also donate um, I know it's obviously hard times but we're relatively more lucky uh, mm-hmm. and fortunate than, than people who don't even have a home so mm-hmm. if you want to donate please do donate uh, through Humanity First mm-hmm. and their scheme and uh, yeah to 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 help out the victims of the floods yeah you can actually access that through chanda which is spelled c h a n d a dot org um and uh you can actually make your donations they're all at the humanity first website um and it's all part of the uh disaster i think it's deck i can't remember what deck stands for sophia can you help me out uh disaster disaster relief is the something program, yeah it? disaster relief fund but fund it's process, it, yeah. it kind of uh i suppose mobilizes all the charities yeah. that are involved but like i say our prayers do go out with them but let's kick the the show off uh, sophia i mean what, mm. what what kind of background do we have for pathway to peace yeah, I mean, we have talked about this uh, a number of times here on Voice of Islam radio station. And for those of you who, who are, of our listeners who have been listening in, they're now very familiar that, you mm-hmm. know, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is basically, you know, uh, we, we, we claim to be the pathway to peace because the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mizza Ghulam Ahmad, um, May peace be upon him, he, he, he warned the world, uh, you know, a uh, long, long time ago, about the dangers and about uh, the challenges, and uh, he wanted to bring people towards back towards God and to 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 bring them back to the uh, real purpose of life, which is to serve mankind as well. Um, and and that's what the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is about. That's what our current uh, worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has been saying. You know, his speeches is uh, about this on this topic has have been um, printed in a book form. The book is is titled Pathway to Peace as well. So it, it's all about mm-hmm. the current situations mm-hmm. over the decade of these conflicts and mm-hmm. wars and, and I mean, things I, like that. I, w- I would go, I would suggest even actually not when you say over the decade, um, maybe because like, we touched upon this last Monday, actually. I remember talking to a guest who had said that actually, and we were talking about uh, last week, um, 
the concept that is is society moving away right away from god uh the the oneness of god and uh the the need for a creator and um this guest came to the conclusion in, in historical terms right he said look looking back at uh from uh medieval times almost that science had been embraced and there was a movement towards science uh into modern day uh and thus actually away from uh religion mm. and the the need right for that uh link to your creator now therefore if we look at modern history has it been uh a positive right has it been a positive experience now you know if we quote some figures regarding this right uh, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute reported back in 2020 that the global military spend had risen to 2 trillion dollars so i you know suggest this that you know has it been a positive experiment this modernization because if it is then why are we spending so much on weaponry mm. so much on warfare right um why why has the world actually i suppose uh, and we see it now right conflicts around the world i mean the latest one or the latest big one on scale is uh the soviet U- well I, i say soviet union I'm a bit old school actually is russia right <laughs> you've seen a lot <laughs> yeah exactly oh thank you for that Sophie. and uh yeah so russia ukraine but also you have uh in yemen yeah. you have syria the conflict in syria since 2012 so you have all these conflicts globally mm. and you would have thought well if we were actually with modernization with science uh this utopian um path towards you know fulfilling everyone's needs then yeah. why are we seeing this happening today yeah I think it's uh you you hit the nail on the head there that you know if people are spending so much money on 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 military on weaponry and of you know so much uh, conflict happening obviously as a result of that uh, so much weapon being available then people are obviously every country all superpowers are talking about you know their interest but nobody mm-hmm. cares about the interest of the the worldwide well, peace right they, they don't care the about is, other they, people's interests so they talk about their interest yeah. but actually do their interests actually match up with their citizens interests exactly yeah right yeah it's a good question yeah uh really i don't know yeah. i mean uh his holiness mirza mazrur ahmed uh, may allah be his helper the head of the worldwide uh, amadir muslim community um stated in in a in a in an address at uh, uh the whilst actually sorry i should say addressing the annual convention uh, in germany We must always remember this golden principle that we must desire for others what we desire for ourselves. We should always realize that uh if we desire peace only for ourselves and not for others then we will never be able to obtain the love, pleasure and help of Allah. Only when a person believes that he must do everything for the state of Allah alone true can true peace be established. Mm. and you know there we have it in a nutshell right absolutely yeah we need to actually uh want things for our brother yeah for our fellow human being yeah. and then only then can we really truly yeah. get peace and that's that's basically the uh, you know the the common teachings of different religions as well mm-hmm. in the past and islam especially uh, specifically uh puts a lot of emphasis on this you know that mm. uh we 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 have to desire for others what we desire for ourselves mm. and that 
involves, you know, um, doing a little bit of sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. On our own, on our own mm. well, sacrificing our own selfish desires yeah. for the for the better good. But to speak more regarding this, we're joined by our first guest of the afternoon, Dr. Leonie Fleischmann, uh, who is a senior lecturer in international politics and human rights at the City University of London. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon, uh, Dr. Leonie, well, Dr. Fleischman, I should say. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, uh, it's always a pleasure to, to welcome our, our guests to the Drive Time Show. So we're talking about you know the situation that we find ourselves globally in terms of conflict and you know this this movement away from a peaceful existence i mean you know there are always disagreements uh between nations uh through time and immemorial i mean do these all, you know do these have to uh, end in violent conflict so i think i think the answer really lies in our fundamental view of the nature of human beings you know, do we think that we are inherently violent people who, if we don't harm the person next to us, they're only going to harm us? The kind of Hobbesian state of nature that we really need to look out up for ourselves. Um, you know, if you believe that, then I think your conclusion is, yes, there will be violent conflict. But if you believe otherwise, that actually human beings can cooperate with each other. Mm-hmm. And yes, we might have disagreements and yes, there might be conflict, but doesn't necessarily need to be a violent conflict. And we also, you know, we do see examples throughout history, present day, about, you know, with the use of violence, as you were mentioning before. But we also see examples of cooperation Mm -hmm. um, and people working together for a common good that might not actually be necessarily um, in their interest wholly, but actually they realize that if we do compromise, um, that we can lead to something greater. Um, So I don't think we necessarily have to um, accept that we will only end in violent conflict. Um, but clearly in our kind of current international system, there does seem to be a propensity for violent conflict as the way to resolve um, the kind of disagreements, the issues, the fact that people don't have enough in the world. And that tends to lead to conflict. And violence seems to be the way that it is, um, you know, people engage Resolved. in. Right, exactly. Mm. Um, I mean, I, but the thing is, Dr. Fleischmann, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s. I won't disclose exactly how old I am in my <laughs> mid-50s right although I was I was born in the time of uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev and uh, you know growing up in the, those times you know the Cuban missile crisis mm-hmm. was quite high up on the agenda and you know to all intents and purposes and if you look at historically uh, we were moments away from a nuclear war Mm-hmm. And that nuclear war was going to be, um, I suppose, engaged over you know a, ve- a relatively small island, Cuba, uh, compared to obviously you know the the two uh, proponents, the USA and Russia. So at that point, um, I think it was due to you know great statesmanship on the part of both uh, countries, yeah, that they were able to take a step back, take a breath, and actually come to some level of detente. Uh, and I suppose in the 70s, you had uh, the US uh, Foreign Secretary, I think, I believe Kissinger, who promoted this, you know, this idea of detente and the, you know, uh, talking and having a common ground. Now, we have institutions like uh, the UN, uh, NATO for, uh, the, you know, the North, Ali- uh, sorry, the North, I can never remember, I think Northern Alliance Treaty, organization uh, you know uh, what nato stands for mm. 
But do these um, organizations now in the you know in the twenty first century they don't seem to have as much how shall I say power to pull um, you know these proponents yeah and to call these proponents you know to the to the table anymore I mean what you know why why do you think that is the case? So I think the problem essentially with our international institutions is that very fact that they're international. So they're organization made up of states. So they're not above states, they're not beyond states. And so they operate based on state interests. So even organizations such as NATO, the United Nations, who we think, you know, can lead to collective security and can lead to a cooperation, it's still very much dependent on the interests and desires of the great powers. And so if at particular times in history they have shown, um, you know, as you said, great statesmanship and ability to bring states and leaders together, it's because it was in their interest. So when it's not in their interest, they don't work. They don't operate as they perhaps were conceived to. So that's the real problem in our current international system is that it's still a system of states. States yield the power and it's only when those states decide that they want to act in a certain way that we would see what we're looking for in terms of the cooperation and dialogue and peace building. Mm-hmm. I believe Iran's got a question for you, uh, Dr. Fleischmann. Um, yeah, Dr. Fleischmann, my question to you is, uh, what laws are there in place already that protect people in war? So we have um, a whole range of kind of treaties and laws that are there to protect people in war. The kind of international humanitarian law um, is the umbrella for these. And these are really the laws, laws of armed conflict. And they establish what can and can't be done in armed conflict. They're not about whether we should go to war or not. That's a separate body of laws. These are about mm. what happens in the battlefield. And it's about balancing legitimate military action and reducing human suffering. So it's saying military action might be necessary, but how can we minimize it so that human suffering is limited? So the main main one we have is the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907, and then the four Geneva Conventions set up in 1949. And the, the real kind of key one, I think, today is the fourth Geneva Convention, which mm-hmm. is about protecting civilians in war. Um, and particularly since battles have gone away from a battlefield, unlike, you know, in the First World War, um, we have very much wars being engaged in cities, in countries. You know, we see Ukraine at the moment, it's civilians who are being harmed. And these laws are there to supposedly protect non-combatants from, um, from war. So it's saying war does happen, and that's okay, um, but we must protect civilians. And those laws are supposed to do that, essentially. Mm. Okay. Can I just... Um uh follow up on that obviously with the laws in place but we see time and time over again um those laws are broken um and uh, violated um do you think that's down to hypocrisy as well a little bit i mean the west has been involved in a lot of wars in the middle east where um a lot of laws you know apparently have been broken there are still investigations going into mm-hmm. you know how the wars went on so do you think that now you know uh, the russia ukraine example um is also of that yeah if 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 the west did it then why can't we do it yeah um i think i think that's right and i think there's also an element not only if the west did it why can't we do it but the west saying well if we hold them to account then we can be held to account so if we think about kind of international criminal court prosecutions it wouldn't it's not in the interest for example of um say us leaders to try to 
think about how to perhaps arrest Putin and take him to the crim- International Criminal Court because it sets a precedent. Mm. It sets a precedent that then, well, they can be captured and um, tried at the International Criminal Court for the war crimes that they've committed um, in the past decade. So I think there's also not just about, um, well, if they can, um, you know, if they engage in war crimes, so can we. It's also, well, we're, you know, we're not going to prosecute these individuals because that puts us at potential um, risk of being prosecuted ourselves. So again, it's about the interests of these great powers and these these leaders um, as well who um, don't have the interests of their populations um, at seemingly at the centre of their their minds, but um, are kind of abusing um, their power essentially. Mm. But then, Dr. Fleischman, do you think, right, given uh, what we've seen around the globe and these uh, uh, proxy wars that are happening? Um, that you know, the international laws, uh, like you said, the number, f- um, I think the fourth uh, category, right, where you're having civilians actually being collateral damage, uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I actually hate using that term, but that's the terminology that you have now. Um, that you know, these laws have been made, but actually, those people or the parties that transgress these laws actually tend to be those ones that have come up with the laws. So. Yeah, I think Sevier's uh, point was that, you know, isn't this a bit, you know, uh, hypocritical? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, these laws, the creation of these laws were important in in the international system. It was about, you know, moving away from the Second World War and um, claiming that we're going to move into a different way of operating. And you had the Security Council and the great powers there operating together. And it was in their interest to create this kind of body of cooperation. Mm-hmm. But actually, you know, whether they abide by these laws themselves, it, you know, it's much of a muchness to them. <laughs> it's important for them to have them for various yeah. kind of ways of operating. I mean, we've seen that in our country past- currently, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. You know, above the law, supposedly. Mm. Um, you know, and actually, um, a number of these countries haven't ratified certain agreements. Um, so, um, you know, the U.S. is not actually... Um, a party to the International Criminal Court. Um, so, you know, there's all this hypocrisy within the international system and amongst great powers. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of people who try to get inside the heads of these great leaders and try to explain their actions um, perhaps better than, better than, better than I can. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, the, yeah, it's, the a, it's a very difficult situation, isn't it? Shift. Yeah. So, okay. So, if we if we approach it from a different angle, then so these laws are punitive. Okay, they're there yeah. to punish. I mean, what about you know what else you know do you think can be implemented to encourage actually peace building uh, within you know the politics within the political world then? So from my, my perspective, I do a lot of work on um, social movements and on people power. And I personally think that looking actually at everyday people is the way that we can create a better world. So thinking about educating people and um, enabling them to understand the other, to humanize the other such that we see each other as um, human beings and as um, people working together. And if people believe that they have power themselves and power as a group, then they can hold the leaders to account and for me i think that's the way forward it's about how can we hold people to account if the international laws aren't doing it mm-hmm. if the other leaders aren't doing it doing it then we need to look to the people mm-hmm. and we have power simply in our numbers you know we are the masses we're the ones that mm-hmm. um 
are, you know, do have the potential. And you see throughout history that leaders have been um, knocked off their throne by um, people power, by mass uprisings. Um, and I think that's the way to go in terms of building perhaps a more peaceful, more cooperative world is mm. actually looking on the ground rather than at the kind of the leaders of the countries. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, I mean, how can, you know, real human rights uh, actually be protected then? Because, you know, you just uh, stated that, and, you know, we, we're, we know that the United States is not um, accountable to the uh, you know, International Criminal Court. So, you know, then how can, you know, apart from people power, let's say, uh, mm. can, you know, these, these, you know, these states be held accountable? And how can we preserve human rights? I mean, it's the real, essentially, it's the real paradox of our international system where we mm. have states are the body that give us our rights, that protect our rights, but they're the body that violates our rights. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> it's a bit of a conundrum. It is. And despite this international system we supposedly have that's supposed to reduce and rein in the power of the state, ultimately states are still the most powerful actor. Mm-hmm. So I think, I'm afraid, it's a, a kind of a a greater um, agenda that we need to take on, which is about perhaps dismantling states, thinking about reducing, you know, getting rid of borders, getting rid of othering, um, such that we can have a world where it's truly global mm-hmm. um, and not having these kind of individual entities that are states that are kind of vying for power and fighting against each other. Mm. And once we can get rid of those and perhaps create an international system that really can reign in the power of, um, of leaders, then perhaps we can have kind of human protection. But I think, unfortunately, the kind of idealism of human rights that came out um, in the 20th century has not really shown itself um, to be working. And mm-hmm. there's some real kind of fin- fundamental flaws to the human rights system, but it's not ones that can't be overcome. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to think big, and we need to think beyond perhaps the way this, the world is currently structured. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Fleischman, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Uh, Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. And you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 0208 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, And definitely, you know, if if you've got some kind of comment or um, some idea, because I think uh, Dr. Fleischman was indicating there, people power. Mm-hmm. You know, would would it take? I mean, you know, guys, do you, do you think that would be the answer? You know, I'm not talking about uh, violent protest, but, you know, if everyone you could, because this is the time whereby something of a global peaceful protest can actually be instigated because of social media. I mean, we saw it with, um, my memory's a bit kind of hazy, but, um, you know, like with the Arab Spring, that yeah. uprising, yeah? Mm-hmm. That was all... Um, enabled by mm. social media, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's you know although you know, the globe is still a big place, yeah, yeah, it's smaller in terms of communication, right? Yeah, I I think it's uh, it's interesting. We have different examples. We also have the the Capitol Hill example, which yeah. which is obviously not great. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's uh, sometimes these these masses can be very unpredictable, isn't it? How mm-hmm. things fold out, um, and then. There can also be a lot of uh, misinformation. But again, I mean, the point is that I think you mentioned this in the beginning as well, that the leaders have to represent the people. Yeah. And as soon as they don't do that, mm-hmm. then uh, the people are not, be- their interests are not being put 
into you know into into the forefront where, where mm-hmm. they should be mm-hmm. so as long as leaders do their job um, responsibly and uh, look after the needs of the people and take care of them then that is the best way to to to, to yeah, but fulfill the job thing is Sophia, right yeah. that's that's the conundrum because mm. they're, they're, i mean if we look at countries now they're not they're not yeah so exactly that, that, i mean this is the conundrum i think dr fleischman was like saying you know to have those laws mm. that um every country is abiding by in terms of warfare but actually those people who kind of drafted up the laws mm. don't abide by them yeah that's the problem we have that's the problem exactly with the united nations as well mm-hmm. and his holiness has actually talked about this uh, in in you know in this book that we have mm-hmm. uh, mentioned pathway to peace as well that the united nations um have to do that job and then as you said if countries are signing up to these laws that we're going to respect these human rights we're going to respect these laws of international peace of uh, warfare yeah then everybody needs to be accountable even those superpowers where the uh you know the the uh, uh, where the offices are or where where everything is you know nobody is above that law so mm. the problem is the hypocrisy is there but that's so why. so mm. you know the, going back to right at the top of the show do you think right that it's because not just the, our world leaders but the masses there's that movement now mm. in society away from a creator because if we truly believed in a creator right then we must believe that there will be a punishment right which will be you know given to us from our creator right from god mm. for for effectively you know rubbishing his creation yeah imran i think one thing that's you know very clear is that people have become very fixed fixed on their own interest Materialism. countries as well as individuals i think mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of selfishness that mm-hmm. what's best for me right yeah. everybody thinks like that you know mm-hmm. they will do anything to get on the ladder mm-hmm. whether it's uh, your career or politics or whatever and they would stem down anybody mm-hmm. to get there yeah mm-hmm. or or step on anybody to get there and i think that comes when there is no accountability or where there's no sense of accountability so i think the belief in god as you mentioned creates that accountability and that sense that if i act in a right way fulfilling the rights of people then allah the almighty or god almighty whatever you know your concept is of religion that you will believe that some god will you know god mm. almighty the one god will hold you accountable for your actions mm. so when when that belief is taken away then people well, when, when become is it's as simple yeah. as like look what if there were no god Okay, that was, I was been trying to be blasphemous, but okay. If there truly were no god and then thus we're all just men here, what makes one man better than another man? So therefore, on that premise, why should I listen to you if you've come up with a set of laws? Mm. Right? Yeah. yeah. Why should I be beholden to your laws Very and true. you not be beholden to mine? So uh, for me it was quite rational like uh, understanding of god because yep. God is at the top, right? Exactly. So God has made these rules. <laughs> you abide by them, right? Yeah. Because if you don't, you're going to bring on the wrath of God. Yeah. And it's you know, sometimes people think, oh, you know what? Uh, say, for instance, if you're an atheist, right? Oh, well, you know, how can God be compassionate? Look at suffering. Look at you know, easily you could chuck the Pakistan uh, crisis currently. Mm. You know, 
look at this. This is an Islamic country, right? How how is that happening then? If yeah. there is a if there is a truly uh, beneficent God, yeah, right. But this is obviously a topic for another yeah. another another yeah. another day, right? Because we could spend mm-hmm. easily another two hours regarding suffering and the, how that is going to actually push humanity forward. Mm. But you know, from my point of view, and you know, you two guys are imams, right? You spent you know a lot of time in the theology uh, and understanding that uh, that 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 the link between humanity and God. Mm. Um, I'm just a you know, kind of like a, a beginner in, the, in <laughs> no, those no. terms, right? Yeah, but even as a beginner, I yeah. see that that lack of really, that, that, you know, that lack of that true love for God and one's Creator and one's uh, brother, the humanity, right? Yeah. And these are the two tenets that are within Islam. Exactly. I mean, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said that if you love uh, the Creator, then you have to love the creation, creation. too. Yeah, and the only way you're gonna love the creation is where you look out for them when you fulfill the rights of people, and that's in like if you're in a position of leadership, then your uh, responsibility is to make sure that your people are Mm -hmm. happy. And it's even a greater responsibility. But to talk more regarding this, uh, we're joined by our next guest of the afternoon, Professor Paul Rogers. Uh, Now, Professor Rogers is uh, the emeritus. Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and Global Security Consultant with uh, the Oxford Research Group. He also lectures on international security. Peace and blessings be upon you, Professor Rogers. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Very pleased to be with you. Good afternoon. Right. So uh, we're talking about um, actually just the global situation and you know the rem- possible remedies to it, the pathways to peace. Now, you're an emeritus professor of peace studies and have also worked in global security. Now, what do you think are the current threats to our peace and security you know, on, on, on the global stage now? I suppose there are probably uh, three main ones. One is that we have a, a culture in most of the larger, more economically developed countries of the world, uh, which really is quite militaristic. So worldwide, we are spending something like $2 trillion a year on military forces. Uh, a great deal of that is in the NATO countries and Russia and China and India, uh, but it does stretch right across the world. And in any of those countries, you have what people call a military-industrial complex, where you have the industries, the military themselves, the civil servants, the think tanks, and all the rest, all interconnected. And there tends to be... Uh, a kind of a view, a culture, in which when you have a major international challenge, um, if need be, you respond to the military force, and if need be, quite early on. Mm-hmm. So in other words, not necessarily looking for non-military solutions. So that's an underlying culture thing. Beyond that, I think the two real drivers of conflict are the widening wealth-poverty divide, mm-hmm. more and more people on the margins, more and more angry young men in particular who have very poor life chances, easily sucked into very radical causes. And then also, without question, uh, the huge issue of global heating, uh, that the world environment itself, we have to change the way we work just to actually survive on the planet in a reasonable form. Mm. Now, yes, there are specific things as well. Obviously, there's the huge war in Ukraine. And beyond all of this, it's the risk of a nuclear war. Uh, And that is a bit risky at present. Going back to what I said, I think we have a culture in which we tend to see threats 
requiring military responses. And I think we have very major problems about marginalization and environmental limits. Put those together, and we have some very major issues ahead to address. But people are very resourceful, and things can change a great deal. If we were talking at this time in the early 1980s, 40 years ago, all the concern would have been with the risk of all-out nuclear war. And mm -hmm. it didn't happen. So one has to be optimistic at the same time. Hmm. But you say that, Professor Rogers, yeah, but we still have that threat. Okay, it's not as at the forefront. Um, I think uh, with our previous guest, I, I was relating uh, back in the, uh, I think, when was the Russian, well, the Cuban uh, missile crisis, I think 60, 68, 69. Yeah, 62. Uh, okay, even earlier then. <laughs> yeah. so, so, yes, at that point, you know, it really was, you know, on the forefront of everything, yeah, nuclear war. And yes, it is a bit on the back burner, but it's still that idea that, you know, someone like uh, Vladimir Putin has that at his disposal. So yeah. doesn't isn't that almost like having an ace up his sleeve? Because it's, it's almost like a, a game of all, all you know, high-stakes poker. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. People tend to assume that nuclear deterrence is all about the threat of mass destruction, that if you hit us, we will hit you. Okay, we'll all go to hell in the handcart, so to speak, but essentially <laughs> it deters you. But the trouble is it's never really been like that. There's always been scope for fighting what you might call uh, limited nuclear wars. And uh, Ukraine is a very good example. I mean, as of now, neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians can win this war, mm. but neither can lose it. Mm. Because the point is, NATO is so involved um, that Ukraine will not be allowed to lose the war to Russia. The NATO will always put more forces, more help in to do it. But on the other hand, Russia cannot lose in the full sense because it's really sort of on the back burner, really facing bigger problems. It can start to risk threatening tactical nuclear use. So, I mean, what it really means is that whether people like it or not, there has to be a compromise, there has to be a peaceful settlement. Mm. It's not. It's not always true in warfare, but in this one, I'm convinced that is the case. Mm -hmm. But you're a professor, you see, and that, that, <laughs> I, I'm not sure Vladimir ever was. But uh, I, I think Imran's got a question for you, Professor. Yeah, um, sure. hi, 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 Professor. So you talked about uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia war, and uh, here the question raises that: uh, What sort of danger do modern weapons pose, and how can how can arms be controlled to ensure there is a global peace? Wow, they're huge questions. In <laughs> terms of the modern weapons, obviously, yeah. we've already been touching on the nuclear side. There are also chemical and biological weapons. Particularly biological weapons have not been very much used in the past uh, because usually you do as much damage to yourself as your opponent. Mm -hmm. But now they're trying to develop genetically modified ones. It becomes much more risky. I would also say that there's a category of conventional weapons called basically area impact weapons. And these aren't highly accurate things. These are de designed to spread bomblets or grenades and the rest over a big area and essentially destroy lots of people and lots of equipment. There are far more of those. They developed a lot in Afghanistan in the 80s and also in Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. But essentially, they basically make warfare very more dangerous. And we've seen it with so many city attacks um, in, in the cities in Ukraine, uh, Kyiv, Kherson, and the rest. So that, I think, is real development. 
there have been some limited excesses on arms control. Um, you, your, your, your colleague was just mentioning the Cuban Missile Crisis. That pulled the Americans and Russians up with so much of a start because they realized they got that very close. But after that, there was some progress. There was a ban on atmospheric nuclear weapons testing. Um, basically, there was the beginnings of the control of the numbers of strategic nuclear weapons uh, and things like that. So there were some developments, and we have several so-called nuclear-free zones where nuclear weapons are not allowed anywhere. The whole of Latin America is now like that, by common agreement. And there is a worldwide convention, which I think nearly 60 countries have now signed, which basically declare nuclear weapons illegal. The problem is there's still nine countries that insist on having nuclear weapons, and it's going to take a long time to get rid of them. You mentioned the whole arms control thing. In fact, Mikhail Gorbachev, who just died last week, um, the Soviet leader, was remarkable because really he was the one who was prepared to deal directly with Ronald Reagan. And between the two of them, they came out with one of the very rare arms control treaties back in 87, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. That got rid of Soviet ballistic missiles facing Western Europe and the cruise and Pershing missiles facing Eastern Europe from Britain and elsewhere. But essentially, the key thing about that was those weapons were modern. They were state-of-the-art weapons. All too often, arms control agreements come about when you're getting rid of obsolete weapons, and you do it by sort of mutual scaling down. So but it, I mean, it's a very fair question, and there are many other proposals for arms control, but you've got to have the political will, which often has to come partly from public opinion, and by and large, there isn't enough of that at the present time. Mm. Mm, you've got to have that political will, I think, on both sides as well, isn't it, uh, to, yeah. to make it yeah. work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know the, the other part of uh, of of the challenges that we, we face with these these conflicts is always the, the the hardest and the most tragic part where the you know the the people suffer um and, and yeah. um you know we see tragedies we see people dying i mean whether it's kids or elderly or or innocent people who have nothing to do with the war whether they are in palestine africa you know um ukraine or anywhere else um yeah. So, so the the laws and policies that that are in place we we did talk about war uh policies if they are not working then then what is it that the countries and the international community needs to do to make sure that innocent people are protected I think they have to work together much more and I think the United Nations has to be given far more resources and particularly you have very good diplomats in the UN, some of whom do sterling work. But many of the best diplomats in World Diplomatic Service don't necessarily go into the UN because countries want to keep them for their own use. I would like to see many of the leading countries, not least Britain, um, allow some of its very best diplomats to actually work at an international level in the UN. I think that would give the organization a great deal of sort of increased influence and status. But there are many, I mean, we have the Geneva Conventions. Those are mostly about the conduct of war and keeping people prisoner and the rest. But you have the more, more general forms of international law, international humanitarian law. And there are some ways in which people be, can be brought to book. Uh, the International Criminal Court is one. And there have been several cases when particularly um, dangerous leaders have actually been tried and jailed. But the trouble is that some of the key countries are not members of that. Mm. The United States isn't, uh, Russia isn't, in fact, a president, and even Ukraine is. 
So really you've got them all to start from square, square one and just get more countries to be prepared to push things forward in everybody's common interest. It's got a long way to go, I'm afraid, on that. It's not going to be mm. an easy job. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, Professor, in terms of uh, politics and people in power, you know, the great statesmen, well, actually, I, I tend to, actually, this is called them statesmen uh, nowadays, but uh, these people in power, you know, what needs to be done at their level so that peace is prioritized over, you know, their vested interests? You know, these, I suppose, these, you know, uh, shadowy uh, oligopolies that are, are there and, you know, these business interests more than actually their their own citizens' interests? Well, this is one of the problems with the way in which power corrupts people, particularly mm. uh, corrupts sort of leading politicians. There are notable exceptions. If you look back, uh, people like Gandhi, people like um, uh, basically uh, Mandela and the rest, people who are basically rise above it but they're few and far between. Where can they come from? Well, I think to some extent, this is down to us, ordinary people, that we basically have to demand that politicians put far more effort into preventing these kinds of conflicts. It's in everybody's interest to have fewer conflicts and, uh, and less suffering and less economic cost. I mean, the Ukraine war itself probably killed many tens of thousands of people when you take all the Russian soldiers, the Ukraine soldiers, the Ukraine civilians, and it certainly cost somewhere over $150 billion equivalent in the past six months. Now, this is an incredible waste of resources. It's in nobody's interest to basically have that kind of military system going. Okay, individual politicians may be very happy because of the sense of power and the rest, but as far as common people are concerned, ordinary people, I would like to see far more in the way of peace movement. And I think here, the major faith communities, whether Judaic, Christian, or Islamic, or others, uh, have a very powerful role to play. Because all of the world's major religions have a very powerful peace, peace element in them. Mm-hmm. And I like to see that come to the fore more than it does at present. Mm. Uh, thank you, um, Doctor. So here's, a, here's my question again. So... Peace is also compromised in the aftermath of a war when it ends. How can affected groups regain a normal life? Well, post-conflict peace building is actually a very distinct part of peace studies. And in fact, we've uh, probably graduated the best part of 2,000 students, both at PA and MA level at Bradford, over the last nearly 50 years. Many of those go to work in recent conflict zones. Mm-hmm. And there are all sorts of techniques for bringing divided groups together. There are all sorts of ways in which communities can be helped to rebuild. But the reality is, you have a serious conflict which may last five or ten years. It can take half a century to fully heal. You look at Northern Ireland for about, what, 30 years, 25 mm. years beyond the violence. It's going to be another 25 years, probably, before the province is really at peace. It's a long-term business. For start, I would like to see far more people graduate with the knowledge of how to bring communities together. I think it'd be much better, in fact, than graduating from war studies courses. That's a personal opinion. You probably expected me to say that. <laughs> a bit of self-promotion <laughs> never hurts. No. <laughs> well, Professor, uh, thank you for joining us uh, this afternoon on the Drive Time Show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Have a good day. O two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam 
UK. Uh, and, you know, just to under, underline some of the things that uh, Professor Rogers was saying, um, yeah, just to throw some stats out there, um, you know, there's an estimated uh, 13,000 nuclear warheads which exist, uh, which are known to exist in the world. Um, and, you know, that, that obviously, you know, knowing that even just one, right, if we, if we look back at uh, the two uh, atomic bombs which were detonated by funnily enough the U- United States of America uh, on Japan in Nagasaki and Hiroshima mm. um, it took decades for those two cities and those areas to come back let alone if we look more in the recent past not an actual nuclear um, uh, atomic weapon being detonated but um, if we look at you know nuclear power plants which, accidents, yes. yeah, accidents those areas have been devastated for decades, yeah. uh, and you know the the I mean the the type of I suppose um, I was going to say mutation, but that sounds is that right? Radiation? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah due to the radiation, yeah, yeah, yeah. the in, contamination, in yeah, yeah, the contamination. That's the one contamination, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, due to the can- contamination in those areas. Yeah. yeah, if you're an inhabitant, you know, we've seen you know uh, children being born of you know defects, defects and, yeah. and stuff like that. So. To think that actually there's 13,000 of these 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 new devices. ones are even even many times more destructive as well. So exactly. They're, they're going to be much, much uh, Yeah, so yeah, t- if you think about that, I mean, yeah. why why on earth would you have them? I mean, I know, uh, like the professor was like saying, that there has been a, uh, since the, what is it, since the early 70s, yeah. a movement by the superpowers to actually demilitarize in terms of nuclear weapons but then you know just because they're doing it you've got other countries like mm. north korea who are actually <laughs> gonna, keen to yeah, get some keen to get <laughs> someone on board so it's it's a very bizarre uh, situation and you think you know th- with this uh, this war currently happening ukraine russia even mm-hmm. in that the the uh, there has been a huge anxiety around obviously the 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 biggest nuclear plant in Europe, I think, yeah, exactly. it's, it's yeah. in Ukraine. Yeah, um, or something it's yeah. called, and and even that, you know, has been in the middle of you know um, the conflict. Fire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I anything mean, can, can go wrong at any minute. Mm-hmm. And I think you don't need like thirty thousand nuclear weapon. Maybe ten of them are <laughs> enough d- to destroy the. You world. know what, right? Yeah. I'm going to jump in there, Imran. You don't even need one. Yeah, exactly. You don't even need one, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, th- we've seen the devastation that two. Right, mm. uh, were enough during World War Two, right? Mm. I mean, it, and okay, it did end the conflict pretty, pretty much, kind of like nailed it on. But still, to inflict that kind of pain and suffering on a, on a nation um, can only stain your soul, mm. really, right? But just, I mean, we, we've actually we're very lucky. We've got a, a audio clip from His Holiness Mizrah Mazar Ahmed, uh, head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community, regarding. Uh, more in terms of uh, pathway to peace. So I'm just going to play that for you now. In today's world, we often see the major powers and international institutions make schemes or plans that are aimed at bettering the lives of people around the world. In recent times, one of the issues that many politicians and intellectuals have debated and complained about is climate change and specifically a reduction 
in carbon emissions. Certainly, striving to protect the environment and to look after our planet is an extremely precious and noble cause. Yet, at the same time, the developed world and especially the world's leaders should also realize that there are other issues that must be tackled with the same urgency. People living in the world's poorest nations do not concern themselves with the environment or the latest figures on carbon emissions. Rather, they wake up each day wondering if they will be able to feed their children. Their economic plight is truly desperate and their poverty levels are far beyond our comprehension. For example, there are numerous countries where the majority of citizens do not have access to clean drinking water and are forced to survive by using dirty pond water to, full, uh, to fulfill their basic needs. Even that too is not easily available. Rather, women and children have to travel each day for miles on end to collect water for their families, which they carry home in big vessels balanced on their heads. We must not consider such hardship as other people's problems. Instead, we must realize that the result of such poverty has severe implications for the wider world and directly affect global peace and security. The, fa the fact that children have no option but to spend their days collecting water for their families means that they are unable to go to school or to attain any form of education. They are stuck in a vicious cycle of illiteracy and poverty that is seemingly endless and hugely damaging to society. Today, their poverty and hardship is compounded by modern technology, through which even people living in war-torn or deprived parts of the world are able to see the comfort with which people in developed countries are living and the opportunities that exist for them. Witnessing the great disparity in their circumstances compared to others is cultivating further agitation amongst the local people and these frustrations are being preyed upon by extremists who entice the impoverished with financial reward and by promising a better life for their families. <clears throat> Similarly, the targeting of illiterate youth means that the extremists have free reign to radicalize and brainwash them. The extremists take advantage of the fact that the rulers of those countries have more often than not failed their people. Most, 
regrettably, the ruling classes in war-torn or deprived nations are more concerned about preserving their own status and power than helping alleviate the suffering of their people. The result is that those who have nothing come to view their own corrupt leaders with contempt and see the world's major powers as the enemy. Tragically, so those were the words of His Holiness Mirza Mazra Ahmad, uh, head of the worldwide uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, we're going to go to a short break. Join us uh, after the five o'clock news where we'll be continuing uh, on our uh, talk of Pathway to Peace. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Peace and blessings to all our listeners out there. Welcome back to uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, uh, Taliban, and Imam uh, Imran Akram. Sorry, I had to think about that because he's my new co-host, right? So he's the first time here. Um, so we've been talking in the first hour regarding Pathway to Peace and actually the threats towards uh, or threats to global harmony and peace and uh, yeah, the possible, um, I suppose, remedies to it, Imran. Yeah? And when we look at, uh, yeah, when we look at, the threats. I mean, we were, we were looking uh, when we were talking about uh, the amount of nuclear weaponry that is out there. Uh, you know, thirteen odd thousand uh, nuclear weapons, and you know, uh, uh, the, the head of our community. I mean, what does he have to say regarding this? Um, so, um, in Germany, mm-hmm. um, he addressed the Annan Convention, and he stated that. Uh, we must always remember this golden principle that we must desire for other we must desire for others what we desire for ourselves we should always realize that if we desire peace only for ourselves and not for others then we will never be able to attain attain the love pleasure and the help of allah only when a person believes that he must do everything for the sake of allah alone can true peace be established so, I mean in this um, in this um, couple of lines he said that um, the, the, in establishing peace you have to have to abide this law uh, you have to abide um, that uh, whatever you um, love for yourself mm-hmm. and similarly you have to I mean uh, love for the self as well other mm-hmm. yeah just I mean it's just the idea of uh, I think uh, before Sophia was like saying you know it would become maybe just too selfish yeah. Uh, too invested in our own interests and not really looking out for others. And actually, uh, His Holiness, uh, went, uh, may Allah be his helper, also said uh, regarding the conflict currently in the Ukraine. And he stated, most regrettably, now a war in the Ukraine has started. And so the situation has become extremely grave and precarious. Furthermore, it has the potential to escalate even further depending on the next steps of the Russian government and the response of NATO and the other uh, major powers. As the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, I can only draw the attention of the world's political leaders to prioritising the peace of the world and setting aside their national interests and enmities for the sake of the well-being of all mankind. So also uh, echoing what uh, his his previous address to the IEEE, 
and I think that's that's the problem, isn't it, Imran? Uh, yeah. That um, yeah, we're moving away from uh, thinking about other people's welfare, um, other states' welfare, and more centered upon uh, what's good for us. Yeah, true. Mm. So anyway, to talk more about peace and the actual the pursuit of peace, we're joined by our, our next guest of the, the day. And this is Professor P.B. Anand, uh, who is the head of the Department of Peace Studies and International Development at uh, the University of Bradford. Uh, he also teaches public policy and sustainability. Peace be upon you. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show, Professor. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. No, it's a pleasure having you. Uh, so we're talking about you know the conflicts, and not just specifically about the uh, current conflict that we find ourselves in, or not that we, I suppose, but the, the current conflict which is uh, between the Ukraine and Russia. Uh, but, you know, the world is beset by conflicts globally. Now, you lead the Department of Peace Studies and International Development at Bradford University. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your research on how uh, to apply that kind of knowledge of peace and equity uh, to you know, practical means? Thank you. Um, I think you had Professor Paul Rogers, our yes, that's right. professor earlier. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, an amazing, amazing uh, individual. Um, my department was founded in 1973. Um, and so the coming year is our golden jubilee year. We are very much looking forward to it. Um, but the principle, I think, is very much related to your question in mm-hmm. terms of what can we do, uh, not only as nations, you know, in terms of um, working together and achieving international cooperation, which is very crucial, of course, to have global peace, but also what we as individuals, what can we do and what is our role in, in this context? Um Again, it goes back, you know, if I may connect it with uh, your conversation about the nuclear missiles, Mm -hmm. so nuclear arms, rather. So you were kind of talking about, you know, there are 13,000 of them and, you know, we need to get to zero. Uh, How do we get to zero? Whether it's nuclear weapons or you also played a clip from His Highness uh, about climate change Mm -hmm. uh, and the carbon. I think the issue is very similar in the Mm -hmm. sense that we are talking about an issue of trying to achieve trust so that my actions and your actions are coordinated, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as I can trust you that you will do the same thing um, or whatever is needed, and then I can, you know, kind of um, take that trust for granted, then I can cut down my own, for example, use of energy or, you know, cut down my um, uh, lifestyle, for example, uh, and things like that. Or in the case of nations, you know, we can cut down um, the uh, nuclear nuclear weapons. So achieving that trust, I think, is absolutely crucial. What is the evidence for this? So we have seen during the 1980s, um, the, you know, kind of once the discussions between the then USSR and, and the USA NATO were able to begin, um, that led to some pathway to de-escalation and also reduction, you know, both uh, kind of blocks voluntarily signing up to trying to reduce reduce their, their you know arsenal we haven't quite reached the zero but mm-hmm. at least you know we have tried to reduce so i think you know similar is the case with regard to individuals as well um but why achieving such trust is so difficult is because um i think you know the self-interest versus common interest these are you know pulling in opposite direction 
um, self-interest is telling you that you have to take care of your family, you have to, you know, fight for your corner or whatever. And so you try to maximize, you know, the amount of resources that you want to take, but that is at the cost of the common good. So I think that is at the nub or heart of this question in terms of what we as individuals we can do is to understand this and find ways in which this interpersonal trust can be built. I think that is the foundation of uh, a society. If we can build, you know, that kind of a trust, more trusting societies are the ones where the government and people also have a trusting relationship and then mm-hmm. the government can take, you know, appropriate actions. So whether it is signing up the International Climate Treaty and keeping those words, for example, many countries sign up to treaties, but whether they keep, you know, keep to the words and mm-hmm. do the actions necessary. Keep to their pledges is another thing yeah. altogether. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I would then say to you, because like uh, I was just thinking, um, you know, obviously we've just, last week we saw the passing of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev at the age of mm-hmm. 91. And so I would um, suggest that he was such a major statesman in terms of uh, his idea of, if I remember correctly, perestroika, mm-hmm. openness. Perestroika and glasnost, yeah. Yeah, and glasnost. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that took Russia, uh, or the Soviet Union then, at that point, out mm-hmm. of that Cold War phase. Uh, and, you know, that um, being poised, you know, mm-hmm. with their fingers on the button, uh, so to mm-hmm. speak, uh, of the, I suppose, the post-World War II uh, in the 60s, yeah, in the 70s, that kind of time frame. Um, and, yes, like you say, but it relied on the statesmanship of one person. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, th- I think uh, mm-hmm. at the time, you know, the, uh, the Soviet Union had great trust in someone like um, Mikhail Gorbachev. Currently... You have someone else at the helm, Vladimir Putin. So, yeah, you know, so, there is yeah. the conundrum. Yeah. So if I may just, uh, I, I think it's a very good question. I did not, uh, I don't, uh, um, for a moment, suggest that, you know, trust means, you know, it's only about individual leadership. Mm-hmm. So what happened is, it's great to have a statesman like Gorbachev as president. If you can get one, that's great. But trust is, you know, it's not based only on um, a a particular person at um, that leadership role. In that case, you know, history is replete with uh, uh, people who promised all good things and then become, you know, Mm -hmm. autocrats or, you know, despotic kind of rulers. So, when we say trust, this is kind of developing the necessary accountability mechanisms to get those kind of institutions so that it doesn't matter who is in power, the institution works for the common good, mm-hmm. right? So that requires layers of accountability mechanisms to be to be built in. Again, I was listening intently to the clip you played from mm-hmm. uh, from uh, his yeah, his illness. Um, uh, you know, he mentioned also about, you know, corruption in mm-hmm. societies and yeah. things like that. So when we do look at the research on corruption, also we find that the best way to, you know, overcome corruption is to build these kind of multiple layers of accountability and transparency mechanisms. It cannot be done by, 
a single top-down kind of approach. Some countries have established, for example, anti-corruption police or very draconian kind of laws. Those are needed. Those are like deterrents, but those won't work by itself. The more powerful law you create, the more powerful opportunity you create for people to extract even more bribes. So I know of a country, I won't mention which one, Mm-hmm. Where no, you can, you can feel free. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no. Um, so this is a country, um, you know, kind of which is, you know, democracy is still very fragile, mm-hmm. and um, all the uh, kind of higher offices, if you like, the president's office and uh, various other high kind of government positions, are occupied by a single network, if you like. Yeah, mm-hmm. and even anti-corruption, you know, they, they created. At World Bank's advice, for example, an anti-corruption agency and the head of anti-corruption agency is uh, very closely related to the person who is in the highest office. <laughs> so, yeah, the it's a cliche. Uh, it's a clique, yeah, so, I should say. Clique, yeah. And so mm-hmm. the opposition, if anybody raises voice, and then they charge this person under anti-corruption law and mm-hmm. put in prison. So I think, you know, in that sense, building multiple layers of accountability is the only way to build lasting kind of, you know, um, mechanism of good quality government. Mm. And and that, you know, so it, it, my research is on trying to understand how these kind of, you know, local level institutions develop and why they are flourishing in some cases mm. and why they are not there in others. And we find that where, you know, this kind of, people are able to come together and somehow they do something and it lets a small action. So there was a flood or something and then they all work together to protect uh, the belongings and bring mm-hmm. everybody to safety. That experience then creates opportunities for cooperation next mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And the more, you know, it's kind of a virtual cycle, you can say. So the more, you know, cooperative kind of engagements they have, then mm. the more trusting they become. Mm. So it's, that's kind of, you know, the, the foundation to mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I hope that, that, <laughs> that explains. Yeah, so, uh, so, yeah. It's, it's just, it's just... more experts on Russia and things, you know. Mm. Um, I'm not an expert on Russia, but no, no. I'm an expert on... Don't, don't know, get me wrong, Professor. And, it's just, you know, the foundation of like, how do you do that? And, you know, you're perfectly... A good answer is, you know, that trust and building upon that trust. But is finding that initial, I suppose, opportunity whereby you can demonstrate that trust to, to you know, whether it be your opponent or or whoever. I think Imran's got a question for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, thank you for answering the first question. And uh, my uh, question to you is, what do you think is required on the part of policymakers in the conquest of uh, for peace? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it depends on we've only got uh, about half an hour <laughs> half an hour okay <laughs> that's good good to know <laughs> you are talking to professors so <laughs> you know we are used to elaborating arguments mm-hmm. no I think Professor Paul Rogers is absolutely you know fantastic colleague and eloquent so um, I'll try my best to you know it's very difficult to follow him but I'll do mm-hmm. my best um, no um when you say policymakers, so I think again we have to ask, you know, policy for whom, mm-hmm. and you know, and also in general, you know, we have in our head or in our mind an idea we think of, you know, policymakers, but in reality, in a kind of uh, a very democratic society, every one of us is a policymaker as well, because when we make our decisions, um, whether to, you know, drive a car or not, whether to take public transport, whether to consume certain things or not whether we want to, you know, um, buy because we perceive there's going to be a conflict or something and then suddenly we decide to buy 
more toilet tissue than we normally <laughs> need for example yeah. yeah you remember before the pandemic you know Yeah. Yeah. So but I, I didn't th- I didn't think I, I've got to say sorry yeah to, to interject but I didn't think toilet uh, paper could save you from covid but there again <laughs> you know it, it rushed sure, off our shelves. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it it's just irrational but I know. you know we can't understand why it happened but mm. we know it happened right? right? Right. So this this is this is how we as individuals and everybody I met during that time in the supermarket everybody was kind of saying oh what is this madness but they themselves <laughs> were you know buying But you know that's so FOMO, Professor. That's FOMO. That's fear of missing out, right? You see someone else buying, I don't know, a hundred rolls of toilet paper. You're thinking, well, they must know something, right? <laughs> so yeah, you are worried as well. So yeah, and then we see this all the time in the case of you know conflict or are in, in in kind of impending conflict in the sense that something is going to happen, and then the trust breaks down. This mm-hmm. is just an example of breakdown of trust. So at the beginning of um, COVID. Suddenly, some people saw that on the YouTube or something that whether in Australia or elsewhere, people are buying a lot of you know toilet rolls, and so they suddenly thought, oh, okay, so if it's coming here, we have to do the same. So it's just that breakdown of trust. And on the one hand, uh, government ministers were going on TV and saying that we have everything we need, so don't worry, you know, don't panic. And then people even panic more. Um, so when we say you know policymakers, what they can do, I think you know they can do. Um, as i said you know be more transparent um engage with all the stakeholders i think that's very important and you know and in a genuine way not just in a kind of a you know symbolic or uh, way but listen to listen to the stakeholders and have opportunities for them to influence policy and also i think you know policy um, at, at the same time should be open to new developments so you cannot have a policy that's locked in and you can't say that that's it you know we are going to you know stick with that so genuine pathways to peace because that's what you are discussing mm-hmm. so here i think schools educational institutions they all have a role civil society organizations like yourselves voice of islam and you know um uh, community groups they have hugely important roles over a period of time you know governments have um recognized this um, but in terms of you know in difficult financial times they kind of these become the immediate target to cut funding from mm-hmm. so then we have seen that in 2009 financial crisis immediately the kind of you know the austerity what it did was to reduce the resources available for civil society and those kind of groups so a lot of very interesting groups which are doing very important work um kind of were squeezed out and then for a period of time when poverty increased and people had to rely on food banks we find that actually you know in a lot of cases those community actions um and civil society capacity has been reduced so these are i think you know examples so policymakers need to take a long term perspective and need to be transparent and i think their job is to inform the public and uh, and at the same time be, be genuinely willing to listen i think that's i would say our most important mm-hmm. i could go on <laughs> <laughs> no 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 uh, no no that, that's that's, Imran, that's, that's I hope enough. that was okay and uh, th- thank you i just um wanted to ask you something else as well that uh, you mentioned that um, um people are the policy makers but we see that uh, uh, you know when uh, uk was going to war with uh, iraq i think mm-hmm. people protested against uh, that war but still uk still event uh, war with uh, Iraq and and uh, yeah one million yeah, people there were over a million people yeah. protesting mm-hmm. absolutely so i think those are kind of you know they uh, really remind us 
that you know we think that this is mother of democracy etc even in this kind of place democracy can be can be fragile so mm. that's why citizens need to be actively engaged um you know to first of all to be actively well informed and also to be actively engaged i think we are also you know in, in um there were many important people who again you know took on board these viewpoints there was a foreign secretary he passed away called robin cook mm-hmm. um he i think he made very very important speeches in parliament you know in terms of um the you know broadly called ethical foreign policy if you like mm-hmm. in terms of you know important to, to why it's important to be not just self interested but in terms of you know take the global collective common interest kind mm. of thing but so, i mean you know picking up on imran's point though i mean you know this is this is different i suppose you know the conversation is moving drifting off but actually you know i was at uh, having a conversation over the weekend regarding tony blair and uh that the only real i suppose uh smudge on his premiership was taking the uk into the iraq war mm-hmm. uh based on the argument that um iraq had weapons of mass destruction of which subsequently it was found out that they didn't have any at all mm-hmm. now do you think right um that if at the time tony blair said look you know what i think we need to uh engage and be a part of this conflict you know, go into iraq not based on the fact that it was lies i.e. regarding the weapons of mass destruction but actually you know what we need to still preserve the relationship we have with our greatest ally america um and plus the fact that actually you know saddam hussein is a bit of a despot and you know he does have crimes um uh, associated to his uh, governance of iraq now if he had actually said that wouldn't it have been or uh, you know, uh, yeah would history not have uh, had a different viewpoint regarding him mm. uh, <laughs> again i think probably that would have been a much better question for Professor Paul Rogers. <laughs> yeah, he came to us now. <laughs> <laughs> I can always posit to him uh, in the sense that you know he has written various books um, mm-hmm. um, on, on on this particular question. Oh. I'll I'll I'd like to you know bring it back to the, the broader theme. I think it's a very important question, no doubt. I mm-hmm. think you know um, all wars, you know, um, I, I kind of you know there is no such thing as a as a just war or a right war, right? Mm. So all. Um, it's it's like the previous question you asked you know how many nuclear weapons do we need it's same you know how many wars would we do we need yeah. we don't need we would like to have zero wars right mm-hmm. um i was doing some work in um uh, in in tajikistan in the mountain you know pamir uh, mountains you know in in in, uh, in the communities there and the first time when i visited i was really absolutely um very positively you know pleasantly surprised so there were many houses the front door you know almost would not even have a have a latch so the idea is that if anybody needs shelter they can just you know come in and you know will be welcome mm-hmm. so that is based on trust you know they trust each other that nobody will take advantage of so it's the same if so countries don't need you know any nuclear um ahead warheads just like you know the, the people who in the, in the pomis thought that we don't need 
um, the you know latch on the front door mm-hmm. because we kind of you know welcoming etc. So, but if we can achieve that kind of equilibrium, that would be brilliant. That would be the best solution. Um, but in the meantime, there are self-interests and there are resources on which people want to control. For example, um, and then that brings into question the competition. You know, who wants the resource, or you know, or who wants more of the resource, etc. So that's mm-hmm. what creates the competition. So as I said earlier, you know, the tension, cooperation and conflict, you know, these are kind of um, opposite directions of same same kind of interaction. If we can overcome the strategic kind of um, need for competing, um, you know, <laughs> all the scriptures, <laughs> I think, you know, faiths talk about this idea of, uh, you know, um, cooperation or win-win strategies. Mm-hmm. Uh, my department has, a, you know, uh, when it was formed, the Quakers um, had made a tapestry. So in the tapestries are shown two donkeys. And these two donkeys are connected by a rope, right? And there is a lot of hay on both sides. So initially, each donkey was trying to pull in that direction. And the suppose the one on the left is trying to push towards left. And the one on the right is trying to pull towards the right. And neither could eat the, eat the, eat the grass. But then they worked it out, and then they, instead of pulling against each other, they both worked together, and then so first they ate, they both went to the left-hand side, and they ate the, at the grass there, and then they went to right. So there's a tapestry. It's beautiful. I mean, you know, I think it captures, this is a, almost a, a, a parable from, from Old Testament, I guess, but it captures this idea of, you know, cooperation versus conflict. So if we can kind of, you know, find ways in which we can work together, um, then I hope we can one day achieve mm. zero zero wars. You know. Yeah, uh, no, Professor, I totally agree. Totally yeah, agree. Professor Stephen Pinker actually, you know, he gave a lecture in our department. We had the, you know, our first professor is called Adam Cole. He was here in 1973, so we started the Adam Cole uh, lecture series. So Professor Stephen Pinker, Harvard psychologist, um, gave gave the first lecture. So he he wrote quite a lot about this idea of uh, you know peace, peace. Um, and the escalator of reason. So mm. he argues that you know. When we build this kind of trust, we create this escalator of reason, mm-hmm. and in and more and more people can, you know, the idea of you know knowledge and uh, education, etc., will enable people to ask government or ask the institutions, you know, question them and you know hold them to account. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I think you know that's that's what I would see as escalator of reason. Mm, and to increase one's uh, or the I suppose the cumulative masses uh, critical thinking ability. Mm, really? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, so the media, media like yours, also very important mm, in that point, in that part. Yeah, mm, exactly. Well, Professor Anand, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. It has been a real pleasure. Thank, thank you, you very thank much. You. Okay. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Bye. 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 O two oh eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. So. You know, you know, we are the voice of Islam. I mean, are there, uh, you know, what are the actual religious principles in actually achieving peace, uh, Imran? Yeah, so, uh, you know, sometimes religions blame for the lack of uh, peace in society. Actually, Promised Messiah, on whom uh, be peace, wrote uh, in his book, A Message of Peace. And he states, he stated that uh, if someone questions the possibility of uh, reaching reconciliation while religious differences are playing such a negative role, throwing hearts further apart. 
then my answer would be to say that difference in matter of religion can only play a negative can only can only play a negative role when it discards the dictates of justice wisdom and the well-tested human values only those differences can destroy the process of reconciliation which result in insulting and blasphemic attitudes by one towards the revered messengers and revealed book holy books of other so actually um uh, the practical example this is the practical example said by mm. the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam um and uh, so show that uh, how peace can be maintained in a society with different beliefs mm-hmm. so as an example of his uh, peaceful leadership we see that once a funeral procession was uh, going past and uh, the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace and blessing of allah be upon him stood up as a mark of respect he was told this, that uh, this was the funeral of a jew he replied that was not was he not a human so that shows that uh, how much he respect uh, the humanity and overall mm. uh, how much he worked yeah, for exactly i mean in that simple you know phrase or that simple statement from uh, the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him you know was he not a human yeah. just shows you you know regardless of race color or creed um that that was uh, the holy prophet peace and blessings be upon him that was his love for all creation uh and you know that was imbued by his love for his yeah. creator i mean it's a very simple statement but uh, it's very deep mm. rooted in uh, moral values I yeah mean. exactly yeah. exactly so we're joined by actually uh almost another co-host actually uh imam rabib mirza and uh, uh to talk more regarding uh pathways to peace uh uh peace be, be upon you imam rabib thank you for joining us once again on the drive time show Morning, Sarah. The love, peace be upon uh, you and all of the listeners, and uh, Jazakallah for having me once again. No, always a pleasure, never a chore. So, <laughs> religion. When we're talking about pathway to peace, yeah. Now, religion is sometimes blamed for the conflicts and problems of the world. I mean, do you think there's any plausibility in this argument? Well, <clears throat> first and foremost, if we look at the of uh, the mortalities that have happened um just based upon world war 1 and world war 2 we'll see that they outnumber any you know whether you want to call it regional wars or so called religious wars or any other name you want to give mm-hmm. to um such wars so the data out there first and foremost shows that religion is not the source of war rather it's mankind certain individuals who use religion um as a means to somehow uh, get what they desire or they use it as a, a source of uh, bloodshed they use it to harm other people but religion as i mentioned that it's never been the source of um you know wars in this sense 
uh, as I've given the example of World War One and mm-hmm. World War Two. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes uh, there's certain individuals that would use religion um, to get what they desire. Mm. I think in terms of that, let's say if, uh, if, if you look at um, in medieval times or say the conquest of South America where the Catholic Church uh, came in, uh, amongst the indigenous South Americans and used religion as, uh, you know, to, to, to convert the masses to Christianity or Catholicism, uh, but at the you know at the at the edge of a blade. Um, so I think maybe that argument, you know, supporting what you're saying, is more of a political thing, right? It's to gain um, material wealth ultimately, but to use that in the guise of a a faith. Absolutely, absolutely, because. The as, as I mentioned that sometimes religion is used for um, you know so many different means. It's used for political means and some other different other means, so that certain individuals or certain groups um, can either gain land, gain some sort of authority, gain some sort of um, presidency. Uh, I remember um, just a few years ago when I visited um, the very beautiful country of Iceland, mm-hmm. there's actually a, a waterfall there that's known as uh, the waterfall um, of God, if I, if I remember correctly. And when looking into the history of why this waterfall was named as such, I actually found out that uh, the king who was uh, a Lutheran Christian, um, he would actually bring those people that had not adopted the faith of Christianity to that waterfall. And he would say to them that you have two options. Either you convert to Christianity, or I will put you to the sword. So that's why that waterfall has been named as such, because if they converted to Christianity, mm-hmm. they were saved. But if they did not, then that king would either kill them on the spot and throw them off the fall, or he would just throw them off the waterfall. Um, so not a really you know, good choice yeah. then. <laughs> of course. So, so this is, I mean, as, as you have so rightfully mentioned, that in the guise um, of, of politics or some sort of dominancy, um, religion is used as, as a tool. But the fundamentals of religion, and no religion, because all the religions have come from God Almighty. So God Almighty does not desire um, that mankind should spill each other's blood. But when mankind himself um, perverts the ideology of religion or perverts its teachings to uh, somehow help or assist his own um, perverted intentions or his misdeeds, um, then that's a time where religion is un- unfortunately blamed mm-hmm. um, in such circumstances as being a sort of, um, you know, a source or an originator mm-hmm. of of war. Um, but you know, it's completely the opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Imran, you have a question? Yeah, thank you for answering that question. Um, Ribs, I've got a question for you that uh, are, are the teachings of peace taught by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, only applicable uh, to Islamic State or are there any possible in a society containing different beliefs? So with regards to the teachings um, being applicable, whether it's in Islamic State or not, we find throughout history, uh, especially during the life of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that his teachings, which were fundamentally the teachings of Islam and the teachings that God Almighty taught him and bestowed upon him, they were for the whole of mankind. So the teachings of peace are not only limited to Muslims or Muslim countries or Islamic states, if you want to put it, Mm -hmm. but rather the applicability of peace or the application of peace is for the whole of uh, mankind. And even uh, if there ever comes a time um, where mankind makes contact with uh, other existence or other forms of life outside of this universe, um, they will also fall under uh, that uh, category or that teaching of peace as well. So the fundamental thing to remember is that during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we also see how he put um, his teachings uh, into practice so beautifully and so eloquently. Um, for example, we know that there was a envoy of Christians that came from Najran to meet the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Now, they had a, a very healthy discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, the Christians were saying that we believe Jesus to be God, whereas the Holy Prophet said, no, mm-hmm. I believe that Jesus is dead, as God Almighty has taught me. Mm-hmm. So, of course, there was difference in their religious opinion. But then we see such a beautiful teaching and such a beautiful and noble example that when it came time for those Christians to <clears throat> pray, or when their prayer time came and they sought permission to leave um, the mosque or the, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the mosque in Medina, where they were seated and they were discussing these matters, the Holy Prophet told them that, no, you, you may pray here and you may supplicate and worship here. Mm -hmm. So this is just a very simple teaching of how the Holy Prophet established inter-religious harmony as well. Unfortunately, we see that there are so many, um, you know, very um, barbaric and uh, some very ill-mannered religious uh, individuals, religious scholars, Um, that do not care about inter-religious harmony. Though they may call themselves Muslims, they may call themselves uh, or associate themselves with their religion, but they have not fully understood um, their religion as such. Mm -hmm. So this is just one aspect of inter-religious harmony. Then if you were to look at it from um, a national, uh, international point of view, I should say, the Holy Quran has mentioned that the enmity of a nation should never allow you to act other than with justice and peace. Right. Mm-hmm. Because 
justice is something which is more closely related and more close and more near to righteousness. Sure. So if you have justice, then that's the you know pathway to peace fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And that's why we see that when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessed of him, came to Medina and uh, made a covenant uh, known as the Covenant of Medina, it was a very famous covenant where the various tribes surrounding Medina and the Jews of Medina and the Muslims, they all, you know, were bound to this covenant. And in that covenant, it said that, for example, if someone were to harm one party, then the other parties would assist that party. Um, You know, there would be peace maintained uh, amongst all the parties. Um, and there's so many other uh, different particles of that covenant, um, which is you know available uh, to see online and uh, in our books as well. So the fact of the matter is that the Holy Prophet's um, teachings of peace were not only limited to Muslims or Muslim countries. Rather, wherever a Muslim lives, as the Holy Prophet has defined him, that a Muslim is one who not only safeguards people from his, uh, uh, you know, hands, but he also safeguards people from his tongue. Mm-hmm. So neither would you uh, physically assault someone, and neither do you uh, hurl abuses at anyone. That's the definition of, of what a Muslim is, as taught by the Holy Prophet. And he did not say that uh, a Muslim living within a Muslim country should do this. This is the general definition for any person who accepts the religion of Islam and claims to be a Muslim. So the teachings of peace are not something that are only limited to Muslims, but rather it's something that needs to be um, promulgated and propagated wherever you live, whether it's in your neighborhood, whether it's in the place you work, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your domestic life, whether it's uh, on a national scale, whether it's on an international scale, whether it's uh, in an economic um, state, whether it's uh, for social harmony, whether it's for interreligious harmony, at all levels and all walks of life, that peace must be inculcated to ensure that mankind lives in peace and harmony. Mm-hmm. Very well said, uh, Imam Rabib. Um, I'm sorry to cut our uh, our conversation short, but uh, it's always been it's always is a pleasure to talk to you on the Drive Time Show today. Have a good day. Okay. Thank you so much for having Thank you. me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and you know when we talk about Imran, um, and I think uh, Imam Rabib. Uh, put it very beautifully that uh, the core principle, or one of the core principles, I mean, we can find it uh, in in you know different verses of the Quran. But uh, you know, one of the core principles to that pathway to peace is justice. Yeah. Um, and uh, in fact, um, in chapter six, verse uh, eighty-three of the Holy Quran, it says. You know, those who believe and mix not up their belief in injustice with injustice, it is they who shall have peace and who are rightly guided. And um, yeah, regarding justice, yeah, the the, the Quran actually instru- instructs 
all believers. O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice and be witness for Allah, even though it be against yourselves or against parents and kindred. Whether he be rich or poor, Allah is more regardful of them both than you are. Therefore, follow not law, uh, follow not low desires, so that you may be able to act equitably. So that's um, from chapter four, verse one hundred and thirty-six. Um, so you know, within the core construct of the religion of Islam, that is really. It's it's quite easy, isn't it, Imran? You know yeah. that, that if you adhere to justice and the principle of justice, it's a path. It, that is the pathway to peace. True. I think that's uh, this is the one of uh, this is a beautiful uh, beautiful teaching of Islam uh, because uh, to be a just um, and in in the Holy Quran even say that to be just to your uh, enemy as well mm-hmm. because uh, you may love your enemy but to to be just to uh, to your enemy is a really hard thing mm-hmm. and uh, if you're just to your um uh, enemy and your uh, um uh, your ma- uh, your uh, friends and your family then i think it's uh, really um established the pathway to peace mm, exactly so we're joined by our last guest of the day uh, doc- to speak more regarding pathway to peace uh, dr anuj garang now dr garang is a, uh, a researcher based in the usa uh, who studies conflict peace uh, conflict peace and also refugee rights uh, peace and blessings be upon you, Dr. Arang. Thank you, uh, Garang, I should say. Thank you for joining us on the uh, Drive Time Show. Hi there. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, Anuj Gurung. Uh, oh, Gurung. Sorry. Yeah. Apologies for the pronunciation. No worries. No worries. <laughs> so we're talking about you know uh, today pathway to peace, yeah, and you know the conflict that we see uh, in you know, around the globe. Now, you know, wars. Um, Without a doubt, result in the displacement of of you know those people who are involved in that conflict. Now, you know, is the support that's in place currently for those people uh, adequate enough? Well, first of all, thank you for having me here. It's great to talk to you guys. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, you're right. When war happen, uh, there's a lot of displacement of innocent people, like you saw, for example, uh, with the Ukrainian refugees spilling mm-hmm. into neighboring countries like Poland and so on. So the short answer to your question, uh, whether the support in place is adequate for them, is no. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when wars break out, uh, the first thing a lot of the international community tries to do is make sure people can survive. Right? Are we talking about organizations like United Nations, High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, as well as some support organizations like International Rescue Committee, mm-hmm. Oxfam International, all they're trying to do at first is, hey, let's make sure people have a place where they can stay. Mm. So we're looking into refugee Shelter and camps. food. Shelter and food, right? That's the main priority. Now, over time uh, comes a question about, okay, now that you know we have refugees here in refugee camps, what do we do? So there are some initiatives, right? Like, for example, a lot of times, you know, refugees are, uh, or people try, institutions try to get them back home in some cases. In some cases, they're, t- they're attempted to reintegrate it within the society they're already in, if possible. Uh, and then what we have, what we call third-party resettlement or third-country resettlement, mm-hmm. what that allows to do is, you know, bring refugees from 
places like Syria, let's say, uh, you know, Bhutan, uh, Mm -hmm. Myanmar, right? Mm -hmm. You bring refugees to countries, societies like the United States, the UK even, right? So where they have to, they get an opportunity to start anew. So a very short answer to your question is, you know, no, but there are certain things that the international system is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Doctor, you mentioned uh, uh, Ukraine and Russia war and uh, also uh, some of the countries. So my question to you that uh, how can war-torn countries get back stronger and welcome their citizens back? That's a good question. And, and I'll be honest, I don't have a perfect answer uh, to that question, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because uh, it's not just about war. Uh, if you look at the history of displacement, a lot of times you will even find that the governments themselves are sort of displacing their own population, right? So until we get to the point where the government uh, or, or the societies have come to the point where they can provide safety, compassion, mm-hmm. justice to the to the people who've been displaced, I'm not sure if you want to return, right? Like, mm-hmm. let's say you've been displaced with your family because you fear oppression from the government, right? And you've been displaced to a nearby country, you're living in refugee camps, and people say, oh, come back. But will you go back seeing the things that you've, that you've seen? Mm-hmm. You know, experience the, have also, experienced but, the things that you experience. But yeah. also, Doctor, the, the thing is, though, that, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm very lucky. I, you know, we're living in the U.K., uh, although you know you get a lot of commentators over here saying that we're in- engaged in this conflict between Ukraine and Russia, we're not really uh, because I don't see us like uh, having to fight. You know, we don't have weapons yeah. in our hands. Uh, we're supporting the Ukraine, um, but we're not actually engaged. So yeah, we're very very uh, lucky in the sense that we 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 we've never really seen a war since World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the UK, so you know to actually feel when you are actually displaced, and even like you you, know, you gave the example that when you're in a refugee camp, and say for instance the, the 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 government or the regime that is in control of that country says, look, you know what, everything's hunky dory now, everything's come back to normal, you're wel- welcome back. I mean, there must be a still a sense within those people who have fled for their lives. That that you know, longing that that's my home. Yeah. You know, I ultimately do want to return there, um, but obviously, if I can guarantee, or you know, if I feel safe, and in some respects, some still do return, even if the situation is not safe. That is true, and and here's the thing: I'm a I'm a researcher on this, right? But I will not, you know, speak for every refugee, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, refugees in the end, even though we categorize them in this political label, there are different individuals with different perspectives, different mm-hmm. worldviews, right? Yes, um, there are people who return, uh, but the, at the end of the day, to answer your question, yes, people in in the first instance don't want to leave their home, right? Mm-hmm. right? They're displaced because there's war. They're displaced because there is oppression, injustice, things like that. So to sort of answer your question, if there is a way where the government can communicate sufficiently that here, you know, when you come back, there's going to be peace. There is going to be, you know, uh, fulfillment of your basic rights. There's going to be compassion. Sure, people would love to return home. Mm -hmm. I mean, like uh, there's this idea that people are displaced because they want to. No, that's not the case. Nobody wants to leave home. The only environment that they have known since they were born, right? So, so it's, it's, un, it's important to understand that fundamental 
truth. Now, whether some refugees return home, some people don't, I think that I cannot answer. Uh, it, it has to do a lot with the complex dynamics that is in play, also, you know, personal uh, worldviews and so on. Hmm. Hello? Are you still there? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, um, just briefly, because we're you know we're coming up to six o'clock. Yeah. I mean, how can uh, you know governments rebuild the lives of refugees which are actually affected by war? Then. That's a good question, and and I think that's a question, or that that's uh, that's something that is evolving right now as we speak. Right. Mm-hmm. So my my research is with refugees who've been resettled uh, in the American society, right? So uh, now, while it's not perfect, you see whenever refugees are provided with, you know, basic needs and sort of a platform where they can, you know, provide for their families economically, socially, and so on, right? They have done a lot of good things, economically economically speaking, socially speaking, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So there's a lot of capital and labor, labor from these refugee societies that get invested uh, in these um, in these structures and societies. Now it would be nice to get more uh, resources, like for example, mental health mm-hmm. resources, right? Uh, sort of more investment into uh, social psychological sort of issues. That would be helpful. But if you look at refugees who've been given a chance to show their um, you know labor, show their resilience, uh, it, it has worked very well. At least in in con- communities like the U.S., uh, even the U.K. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now as if the question is about the war-torn countries from which the refugees fled, I do not know, man. Uh, that, that's something. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. something that the that's government the sixty-four thousand dollar question, really, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So if the government can show to people that hey, we are willing to take you back, not only that, you will have a peaceful home that you knew before the displacement. Mm-hmm. That would be a start, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, that would be a long way for the government to sort mm-hmm. of prove. That they, you know, they mean it, mm. and I think uh, given uh, we were to, uh, our previous guests actually were like saying regarding even if conflict has finished, it takes a long, long time for those scars to heal uh, for a country. No, oh, I, I agree. Right. Mm. So while I talk about the the socioeconomic development uh, and agency of refugees, there are a lot of there's a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of psychological needs uh, that is often not met sufficiently, mm-hmm. right? Um, as, as, as you are already aware of, it seems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Nuj uh, Gurang, thank you very much for joining us at such short notice as well, actually, on the Drive Time show this afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I always appreciate uh, engagement and conversation about these things. So mm-hmm. thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Have a good day, doctor. You too. Thank Bye. you. Uh, Well, we're coming to the end of our show, but uh, if you do have any comments, uh, please tweet us uh, on Voice of Islam UK. Um, And, you know, there's some final thoughts, uh, Imran, regarding this. Now, in uh, one of his recent addresses, Holiness Mirza Mazar Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, uh, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, stated the developed countries continue to send ammunitions into war-torn countries so long as they were able or are able to sell their weapons. Now, to them, it did not matter if lives were being lost, but they forgot that the same conditions could eventually develop in their own countries. They were blindsided by their arrogance and they lost the sense of reality. 
Now the entire world can see that what was feared has now been realized, and Europe is now once again home to war as Russia and NATO stand in opposition over Ukraine. Now, whether it is the rich or poor nations, we all have a duty to promote peace uh, in our societies and in, even in our local communities. And leaders, uh, leadership should be used. Uh, should <coughs> I should say, use their roles to strive for peace, which is vital for our collective success and well-being. Mm-hmm. And with that, we end our show. Uh, thank you for being with us on uh, Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. Uh, thank you from myself, Dalit Man, my co-host uh, Imran Ahmed, uh, Akram, I should say. Thank you. Uh, our producer for this show was Feza uh, Hack. Thank you. And also to our backroom staff, Asad. Uh, Here is the six o'clock news.